0: The Midday Report.
1: I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground.
0: The Midday Report.
1: Uh, the big focus today very much on what's happening uh, in Parliament with Scopa looking at those allegations of corruption and fraudulent activities, other maladministration issues at ESCOM as well. So the Hawks, the Police, SIU, all before the Standing Committee on Public Accounts today. The Police say that they uh, confirm that André Gerator, the former ESCOM CEO, did have a meeting with the Police to report crime at ESCOM. Uh, much of the information that was provided by André Derator was generic and strategic in nature, didn't specifically provide evidence of a crime. So they've been going into detail about that. Godfrey Libia from the Hawks is saying Derator declined to meet with the police who approached him a day before he gave that interview to ENCA. Have a listen to advocate Andy Motibi, the head of the special investigating unit, speaking about uh, the report that ESCOM did and uh, why it was not reporting to the relevant authorities like the SIU.
2: Have a listen. The SIU first became aware of uh, the existence of what's called an, intelli- an intelligence report on the morning before the CEO was due to appear uh, before Scopa, uh, I think on the 26th of, uh, of April of this year. The investigating team immediately requested a copy of the report from ESCOM officials as it was important so that we access it and team appropriate to go through it and see matters that requires further attention. And we were advised uh, by ESCOM on the 5th of May that ESCOM is not in possession of that report. In terms of section 34, of course I will not really go through this, uh, it was covered appropriately by my colleague the head of GPCI. Now uh, uh, Honorable Chair and Honourable Members, as I indicated that part of our mandate is to ensure that we investigate maladministration and malpractice. Uh, On slide 58 we just indicate that uh, amongst others it is really uh, our interest uh, to seek certain clarifications and and answers to certain questions uh, in terms of what has transpired here.
1: Advocate Andy Mutibi from the SIU. Let's speak to Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN parliamentary reporter, who's just stepped out of that uh, that briefing with Scopa. Lindsay, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Police responding to the allegations made by Andre Dureta. Have they been investigating? Were they investigating? Are they still investigating? What is the status of these allegations?
3: Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, there are um, over 1,500 cases linked to ESCOM. that the police say they have been uh, um, uh, looking into that have been lodged since uh, last year, April. And so it's a very high number of cases. But in relation to what Andre DeReiter may or may not have told them, they've confirmed these two meetings that he had told this committee two weeks ago that he had with the police. But as you pointed out earlier, um, Mandy, he's saying uh, they are saying much of what Andre DeReiter told them uh, wasn't specifically um, pointing to a specific crime. There was no evidence. Um, directly linking anybody to a crime. These were very general claims that he made, um, a general discussions that were being had about corruption at ESCOM in general. Uh, and interestingly, Mandy, um, it would appear that he only handed in this information formally in writing to the Hawks the day before he came to Parliament here two weeks ago and incidentally gave them the exact same 13-page report that he gave um to parliament and so one would only then deduce that under the was perhaps a bit concerned that he had fallen foul of the law by not reporting any of these crimes uh, that he alleges has taken place at ESCOM directly to the police because, as you will recall, there is already a complaint laid against him by Vasa leader Musi Maimani for this very um, uh, offence that they believe that he's committed, uh, which followed from that interview that he gave in February.
1: Well, Lindsay, let's have a listen to what uh, the Hawks head Godfrey LaBia has been saying about that.
2: Mr. Director De declined to meet uh, the officer but uh, referred him to his lawyer who promised to talk to the officer. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the promise to come back to the provincial head uh, did not materialize.
1: So that's uh, Godfrey Labea speaking about the fact that they did ask Andre Dereta to um, speak to them after he made those claims. Uh, All of this, of course, based on that private intelligence report that was funded in part by Business Leadership South Africa. Uh, That report is receiving a lot of attention in Scopa today. What are police saying about that?
3: It is indeed. Well, they are basically saying that they had no knowledge uh, that either that ESCOM had commissioned that report, this is what Fau and Andy Mutivi is saying, had no knowledge about that, even though they have been um, regularly investigating corruption at ESCOM and had regularly engaged with Mr. director in the past, had no idea that such a report was being commissioned. The Hawks saying that they had no um, idea that such a report existed either and that they have been trying to get their hands uh, on the report and um, and so uh, what we understand at this moment in time anyway mandy is that no authority has that report and you heard in that clip earlier siu head andy mutivi said he had approached escom and on friday escom itself said it didn't have that report so where that report uh, is who's in possession of it remains unclear at this time but it's real it's significance really mandy is that many believe that this is the report on which uh, under the has based many of these corruption claims. And then, of course, that expose and this committee also hearing that the police wants to know who mm. may have leaked that report to the media, mm. uh, because, as we know, lots of controversy uh, surrounding um, whether that the information contained in that report is really worth the paper that it's written on. Um, and so a lot of attention being paid to this report and the SIU mm. saying they also intend to understand how it came about that this report was commissioned in the first place. Of course, we do know Business Leadership South Africa has confirmed that under Director, uh, approached um, the organization mm-hmm. in 2021 to conduct this report, but um, yes, it seems that uh, authorities here completely in the dark about the existence or the contents of that
1: report. Lindsay, thank you. Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN's uh, parliamentary reporter, stepping out of uh, that Scopa briefing. Uh, it does look as though, and I'm, I'm watching on, on uh, Newsroom Africa here, as though the police officers are really taking a lot of fire uh, from the members of Scopa, from um, Koleko Hlingua, from uh, Mente, uh, really asking very pointed questions saying the team sitting in front of us today failed dismally. What do you think about that? Uh, do you believe Andre Rater, uh when he says that he gave the information to the police? Um, and do you think the police have done enough to investigate this?
0: The Midday Report.
1: And then just one last bite on this power situation. City Power says it's experiencing a high call volumes because of the wet weather conditions that is in the city of Joburg, of course. All of that compounded by load shedding. And then don't forget there's also cable theft and vandalism as well. So let's check in with Isaac Mungena, who is the City Power spokesperson. Isaac, good afternoon to you. We've got uh, the perfect recipe for a disaster here. We've got wet weather, we have uh, stage six load shedding, we have cable theft, we have vandalism. What is uh, the knock-on effect? What are you dealing with today in terms of calls?
4: Um, good afternoon, Mindy, and thanks for having us. Um, look, we, we, we are really under serious uh, pressure and as you briefly pointed out, the problem of inclement weather is not assisting, but more so the higher stages of load shading that we find ourselves in is really, you know, putting us in a difficult situation in terms of our operations. And this morning we we woke up um, basically dealing with about 3,500 uh, outage calls, almost 3,500 outage calls across, across the sea of Johannesburg, and uh, almost half of those are actually calls that have been, um, uh, you know, locked just yesterday, and uh, it's surely because of the kind of weather that we found ourselves in, but also the this higher stage of the seats of load shedding, which we basically had to contend with.
1: So, have you been able to boost your teams to get more more boots on the ground, and how do you do that, Isaac?
4: yes indeed we we have a basically in, in a few months ago recent months uh started putting in more teams because we realized that we are not gonna get out of this load shading anytime soon and also because of our winter strategy because of now we're moving into those um um uh, uh, you know weeks where uh, the demand for electricity will basically be very high due to the cold weather. So we always, around this time, start to basically pump in more resources, uh, ensure that uh, everyone is ready in terms of the the, the the schedule of when they are coming to work and so forth, but also even in terms of the, 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 the resources, the material that is needed for outages. But we haven't been able to keep up with all of those because, of as, as, as things stand, we are basically using a lot of material due to the amount of fault. And outages that we have to deal with on our network on a daily basis, we we replace at least seven million substations. That that is about uh, six hundred thousand uh, per minute substation, which is a lot of money. And if we are doing that and it continues at this at this rate, we will end up basically not having.
1: Oh well, look at that. We've lost Isaac Mangena's line. Isaac, you still with us? Can you oh, hear me? There we go, there we go. You, you're back again. Yes. Um, uh, Isaac, I just wanted to ask you before I let you go the pressure points are Rudderford, Randberg, Reuven, and Hurst Hill. Uh, is, is that accurate?
4: Yes, so we've got a lot of um outages that we're currently dealing with. I think Rudaport alone had about um a thousand outage calls by early this morning and uh, we also have situations around Rambeck, North Riding, um and also even 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 even, even other areas like Hest Hill. So the main issue there is obviously over and above the Old infrastructure that we're currently running in those areas. It's also the issues that we always deal with of vandalism and cable theft. As I'm talking to you now, Rainfair has just. Uh, got uh, a cable that got stolen and the people there have been without electricity for several hours now and we are only managing to basically get the contractor on site to ensure that they're dealing with the issue.
1: Okay. Isaac, thank you. Isaac Mangena, City Power Spokesperson speaking to us there about uh, the high call volumes by this morning that opened over 2,200 outage calls from customers across the city of Joburg.
0: The Midday Report.
1: Well, let's uh, change tack here because uh, Deputy President Paul Mashatile is in Yachersfontein today. He's undertaking a service delivery oversight visit. And uh, remember, of course, what happened last year when 186 people were displaced by the Yachersfontein Dam disaster. The uh, Free State Premier Nkholisi Dukwana has also been speaking there. Aaron Singh, EWN reporter, is in Yachersfontein for us. Aaron, good afternoon to you thank you very much for your time. I heard your report in EWN, which said that it's taken seven months for the Free State Government to construct three show houses to present to the displaced people of Yachesfontein that they can't even live in. Tell us about that.
4: course, Mandy. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so governments essentially are saying that the reason for the delays of actually constructing homes for the 186 displaced people is due to uh, to talk- toxicity reports Um, they had commissioned uh, three reports to be done and until those reports were actually completed they couldn't go ahead and and construct the homes Um, this was due to ensuring that the other dam the other uh, compartment so the actual mining site itself is broken up into two compartments c1 and c2 and c1 is where the collapse happened and c2 is still full and so they needed to get all the necessary checks um, done and the reports compiled um, before they went ahead and actually constructed these homes and built them. So the, the government themselves have not built these show houses. These show houses have been constructed by the Akers Fontaine Development. And this is a company that's come in and taken uh, shareholdership uh, within the mine. They got 51% shares in the mine in June last year, just a few months before the dam collapse actually happened. So they're the ones that have, they've set aside 20 million rand. um, And after 20 million rand, the money is going to be used to build homes for the people who lost their homes, as well as rehabilitate land and also medical costs for all the people that were injured. As we know, one person died, two people remain uncounted for um, seven months later. And you know, scores of people were injured during this disaster.
1: So the Deputy President, Paul Mashatila is there today. What has he been saying?
4: So uh, uh, the, the DP hasn't spoken as of yet. He was We met at the Yachis-Fontaine Hospital this morning, and he was basically being briefed um, by the provincial government as to what's actually happened. He's also been engaging with the Yachis-Fontaine Development as to you know the reports that they had... Received and and what the status is currently. But interesting enough, you know, um, we, we caught up with recently elected free state premier Polisi Duquana, and he and he's the one that was actually telling us that you know they couldn't really go ahead and construct these homes due to conflicting uh, toxicity reports. And he says one report contradicted the other, in which one claimed that the sludge that was released as a result of the dam collapse was toxic, while the other one has conflicting reports saying that it's not. And we've got a clip um, that we just want to share with the listeners now. The,
2: the problem has been also dealing with the report that we received that actually indicated that there was, uh, the, the sludge was toxic. And subsequently we we'll received another report that contradicted that. And that also delayed some work from beginning.
1: Thank you very much, Uh, Oren Singh, who's in Yachersfontein uh, for bringing us that story. So as you heard there um, from Kolisi Dukwana, the delays in construction of 160 homes due to two contradictory toxicity reports. So they've built three houses, right? So there's three show houses. so They can go and have a look and say, uh, this is the one that we want. The community decides on which of the three show houses they want, and then they are going to build the houses. But it has already taken seven months to get to this point for those people that were Displaced by the Fontaine Dam disaster.
0: The Midday Report.
1: The Senzo Miyua trial continuing today, although there has been a postponement, as we heard in the EWN News Bulletin, because of a lack of uh, interpreter. Five men are on trial for the crime of killing the Bafana Bafana captain, Chamotso Medise, EWN reporter in court for us. Uh, Chamotso, so the trial's not going ahead today because there's no interpreter. What happened?
3: That's right, Nancy. Good afternoon. So, proceedings are set to proceed um, in the Pretoria High Court today, but um, we heard from Advocate George Baloy, who's for the state, uh, saying that the they haven't been able to secure the services of an interpreter today. The interpreter who's been working in that classroom had called in to say that due to unforeseen circumstances, he can't make it to work. And so, you know, we saw proceedings um, delay a bit. We actually thought that they would go ahead because we heard from lawyers that they were trying to find a substitute or someone else. However, we heard from the lawyer that um, the substitute who was uh, going to be the Zulu interpreter today was actually at the Palm Ridge Magistrates Court, which is o- over 80 kilometers. Away from um, the Pretoria High Court, and so it was then suggested that the matter stand down until tomorrow.
1: And then, just remind us: um, we still have Motokozisi um, Twala, who is under cross-examination, right?
3: That's right. So Motokozisi Twala is supposed to continue with the cross-examination today. It's a new lawyer who is going to be cross-examining. That is um, Advocate. Charles Nisi, and he is the lawyer for the third accused, Lubbe, and so we we're expecting him to start today. You will remember that yesterday um, uh, there was a, a slightly earlier adjournment of about ten minutes or so because um, Nisi didn't want to start cross-examination just ten minutes before uh, proceedings were, you know, due to be um, completed, and so um, it was proposed that the matter start properly today with Nisi beginning his cross-examination today. However, that hasn't been the case. So Nisi is representing the third accused. We've already heard from Ramos um the attorney who's representing the first two accused. He's completed his own cross examination. After Munsumandi, we're scheduled to hear cross examination from two other lawyers, but advocate Ngumalo and advocate Mshololo, both who are representing accused number four and five, respectively. Uh, but that will be delayed now, of course.
1: Due to the lack of an interpreter. Komoto EWN reporter, thank you very much for giving us uh, that update uh, on the Senzo Miyua trial, which has now hit a snag, the delay there because of a lack of interpreter.
0: The midday report. Well,
1: let's stay in the courts and get a quick update now on the sentencing of the Tsakani serial rapist. Bernadette Wicks is following that. Uh, Bernadette, good afternoon to you. Uh, firstly, just remind us, what is this, this case about?
5: All right, well, essentially um, Petitana Lebele has pleaded guilty and been convicted of four counts of kidnapping and four counts of rape. Um, his modus operandi was to accost women and girls while they were on their way to and from school and work and drag them into the Tsakane cemetery or graveyard and um, violate them there. And his sort of reign of terror spanned from 2017 till 2019. Um, he was eventually arrested. And yes, like I say now, he's pleaded guilty and he has received life for the crimes.
1: So what kind of reaction are we seeing from those who've been attending court, uh, those who who were victims as well?
5: Well, it was really, really emotional at court after the hand down. There were a number of the survivors sitting in the gallery um, and a number of them were weeping and saying that they were tears of joy. Um, these women and girls have just been through so much. The court process is obviously incredibly brutal, but um, it's very, very difficult for sexual assault survivors. And I think for them to see this come to a conclusion and to see this man jailed for life, and especially what they've said to me, is to know that he's not going to be able to do this to anyone else um, is just a massive relief for them. They, they really are just overjoyed with with the outcome.
1: Bernadette, thank you very much Uh, Bernadette Wicks is speaking to us there about the sentencing of the Takani serial rapist who was given life, so look, as the criminal justice system lets us down and the Senzo Muiwa trial doesn't go ahead because there's no interpreter today and you think that it's, uh, it's all a disaster you have a situation like this where a serial rapist pleads guilty and gets sent to jail for life and his victim saying at least he'll never be able to do this to anybody else again
0: The Midday Report
1: well, let's go to Durban now because the Africa travel travel in Darba and away at the ICC in Durban. Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, is there today. Uh, what are some of the issues that uh, tourism uh, is looking at in terms of this load shedding, for example, that we've been speaking about, Nokukanya, and safety for for tourists as well?
3: Absolutely. Good afternoon, Mandy. So yesterday, when we last spoke, we'd spoken about how optimistic they appear to be about. Uh, the tourism sector rebounding to pre-COVID levels. But they do need to address a number of things so that they are able to get to that point. And safety and electricity uh, are among those things, particularly with safety, because we do know that investors and tourists uh, are somewhat put off about coming to South Africa because of a lot of the things that they read In the media, so the officials here um, are speaking, are in the works. In fact, Mandy, um, about creating a dedicated police unit, uh, unit rather, that will look into um, keeping the tourist destinations a lot safer, more police visibility um, at those attractions across the country, uh, better street lighting, um, and and so on. And uh, I'm just going to cross over quickly now. To uh, a gentleman here from the South African National Parks. He's Reynolds, uh, Reynolds Takogi, who is um, one of the officials, and he's here exhibiting at a stand at the National Parks. And Mandy, you know that it's one of the uh, major tourist uh, pools. Uh, Reynolds, just a quick one in terms of bringing in the tourists. To some of the national parks that we see across the country, what are some of the issues, uh, particularly with safety, that you find that you need to address, um, so, so that they aren't particularly put off about coming to the country?
4: I think one of the important things is uh, stakeholder engagement, particularly with uh, you know communities that are surrounding our national parks. Um, we are engaging a lot with uh, with them. We are also engaging a lot with uh, law enforcement agencies. So that you are able to sort out of the whole issue of, uh, you know, tourists being uh, falling into into the criminal, uh, you know, elements within within these this areas.
3: Absolutely, Mandy. So we heard um, mm. from the South African National Park.
1: Nokukanya, thank you so much, Nokukanya. I'm Tambo EWN reporter. Thanks for for bringing us uh, that voice as well at the at Africa Travel Indaba underway in Durban today.
0: The midday report.
1: Let's end with uh, some, some uplifting news. We like to, to make sure we bring you some balance on the Midday Report. And it is Smile Week underway to honor the legacy of uh, Nelson Mandela. This upcoming week uh, is a collaboration between the Smile Foundation and the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital as well. It's a public-private partnership. um, And it's running from the 7th to the 14th of May. 20 children from previously disadvantaged families will be undergoing life-changing reconstructive surgery. Most of those surgeries will involve cleft lip and palate repair, with the exception of a burn survivor who is undergoing tissue expander surgery, another child who is undergoing full ear reconstructive surgery as well. Kim Robertson-Smith is the Smile Foundation CEO. Kim, good afternoon to you. Thank you so much uh, for your time today. So tell us about Smile Week and tell us about some of the, the 20 children whose lives are going to change this
6: week? Hi, good afternoon. Um, thank you to you and your listeners for having me on your show. So it's an incredible week and it's a culmination of a passion that we've had at Smile Foundation to work at Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital and to do some of the backlog of kids who have cleft lip and palate. So somebody who's born with a cleft lip and palate can't suck. They can't learn to talk. So it's essential that we get these kids done really young. So we have children from the age of of six months that are having their surgeries this week. And to see the look from the mom's faces, because a, a facial deformity doesn't just affect a child, it affects a whole family. So to see these moms and the smiles on their faces when these kids come out of surgery, it's just truly uplifting. And it's incredible to work at this most beautiful, beautiful hospital.
1: Hmm. Um, And then, for example, um, you're also helping a burn survivor, little Nonchlandla, a five-year-old girl from Foslerus, uh, whose life changed in September 2018. Uh, She was only nine months old when um, her mother got a call to say that her house was uh, on fire. Tell us about that case. That's
6: correct. So she's actually in theatre at the moment. I was with her now in in the theatre complex. And um, they're putting a tissue expander in because the hair hasn't grown on on the top of her head. So she only has half a head of hair. And you know that children can be quite cruel to each other. So we want her to look as normal as possible to live a, a normal life. So what we're doing is um, the doctors are putting in a tissue expander now. And that gets filled with fluid over a period of time to extend that hairline forward so that she will be able to have a full head of hair going forward. So this is
1: also mm-hmm. life-changing because it makes her look like any other child and nobody will stare or tease her or point fingers at her. Oh, and she's in, she's in theatre right now. So please uh, send, her, send her our best wishes. I hope it goes well. Uh, what I also love about the Smile Week is that there is a transfer of specialized skills. There, there are three professors. They're attending. They're sharing their wealth of knowledge. Um, and uh, tell us more about that.
6: So that's correct. So we're very, very passionate at Smile Foundation about education and to to swapping the skills um, that doctors have in various areas. So a professor flew up from Cape Town and he was able to teach some of the surgeons, the local surgeons in Kao on how to do certain cleft procedures and how to do a cleft lip and palate on on a little nine-month-old girl. So um, he was able to share these skills and the doctors will a- be able to do these, these surgeries in Counting going forward. So having the registrars mm-hmm. in theatre with these, with these professors and learning skills that they can take forward into the rest of their lives.
1: Kim, thank you so much for, for sharing some of these stories with us and uh, best of luck the, this week with, with all of the surgeries. Thank you so
6: much. And um, please ask everybody to go and like us on Smile Foundation S.A., um, all of your social media—that would be incredible.
1: Kim Robertson Smith, the Smile Foundation CEO, this uh, this week is Smile Week, and that means that in collaboration with the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital, twenty children's lives are undergoing—they are undergoing life-changing reconstructive surgery.
0: The Midday Report.
1: That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website, 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener.
4: Latest news, breaking stories,
0: expert analysis,
4: all you need to
0: know. This is the Midday Report.